Well, turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to take on uh, 11 verses today, but we're going to camp out here for a good while because of those famous verses 22 and 23, and we're going to unpack each one of those traits and look at how by living in the Spirit of Christ, uh, we can uh, demonstrate the very Christ-likeness that's given to us there in those verses. But, but it's very important that today we look at the total context in verses 16 through 26 because we can want the uh, fruit of the gospel all we want, but if we don't know how to get it, uh, it'll be just a pipe dream. So let's look at verses 16 through 26, and we're going to study uh, how it is that we come by the very traits that are described uh, about Christ and Christians in verses 22 and 23. Let's read together verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Amen. Well, let's notice in verses 16 through 18, first of all, there is a war going on, in case you didn't know that. And it's not in Iraq. It's not in Afghanistan. It's right there in your heart. Uh, there's been a war going on. Uh, the, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there was a war going on. So often... Folks will talk about how we need to enter into spiritual warfare. And what they mean is sort of a 20th century idea that, you know, you, you gear up for a big prayer time. Uh, you can even have a prayer march or march around something like Joshua did the walls of Jericho and go into a long season of prayer. And you can claim certain things that God has given us in the Bible and you can take authority and all the rest and we're going to have spiritual warfare. Well, here's the biblical definition of spiritual warfare. It's all the time. All the time. It's not some special event that you get all, uh, you know, uh, excited about. Not some special uh, occasion when you put an unusual effort for it. It's all the time. As soon as you put your trust in Christ, you're in for a battle. There is a huge conflict. And if you're sleeping through it, uh, you're not going to win the battle. You have to be awake. You have to be ready all the time. And you'll find the instructions, especially in Ephesians chapter 6. We're to be alert and to be watchful all the time. Jesus told his disciples, be alert all the time. So when Paul says in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor, you know, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the shoes of the gospel and all the rest, uh, he's talking about every day, every moment. 
put on, as the hymn writer says, put on each piece with prayer. So you're prayerfully putting on the armor that God has given you to fight the battle every day. And you notice there's no armor for your backside. All the armor's on the front. So you're not running from the devil. You're running from temptation, but you don't run from the devil. You face the devil with the armor, and then you have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you use it all the time. And he will be relentless until he is finally consigned to the lake of fire and God takes care of him. Then you, want, you can take your armor off at that point. When you get to heaven, take your armor off. Now, you never take it off. You're, you've got it on continually. So the Christian life is a war. And Paul makes that clear here. If you'll see, he says, he, 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 he draws the contrast between the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, and what's called here the sinful nature. The word in, in Greek is just one word. It means flesh, sarx. So it's between pneuma, the, the spirit, which is not just the human spirit, but it's the spirit of God working in you, and your flesh. And we don't mean just this flesh, physical flesh. There's a principle. It's the, the principle by which you naturally live as you're brought into this world and it, it yields all those traits that you find in verses 19 through 21. There's a principle in your very life that yields all that stuff in 19 through 21. That's the flesh. It is the evil that resides within you and all the evil tendencies. It is your very nature. So actually the NIV translates it helpfully, sinful nature. It's just not so helpful when we get into other aspects of, of comparison but it is your sinful nature with which you're born. And there is a war between your sinful nature and your regenerate heart because the Holy Spirit is working within your regenerate heart. And he says here, uh, the sinful nature desires, look at verse 16, 17. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. So if you're feeling schizophrenic every once in a while, that's where it's coming from. If you're a Christian, you have two things going on within you all the time. One of them, of course, is dominant. The other one is in recession. You want to keep it in recession and in retreat, and you want to defeat it every day, every moment. Uh, some on our pastoral staff are reading... Uh, the Christian uh, in Complete Armor, written by William Gurnall about 300 years ago. And uh, if, if you want to look at that, there, there's a modern three-volume set that put the William Gurnall's uh, work in contemporary language. Uh, it's called The Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall. And it's a, what it is, it's a description of the Christian life. The Christian life is a battle with our armor on fighting the forces of evil within us and around us and even uh, over us and under us from time to time. So two lifestyles are in conflict. That's what the apostle is saying. That's what we're faced with. Now, notice in 17c, this is our second point, we cannot defeat the flesh. He says, so that you do not do what you want. That's kind of discouraging. You do not do what you want. Now, let's look for a moment in Romans 7 to have this sort of explicated for us a little bit. Romans 7, uh, Paul talks about two ways in which people seek to be sanctified. And if you'll begin looking at verse 15, this would be uh, on page um, 1821. 
The Apostle Paul says in Romans, uh, I do not understand what I do. So I not only cannot do what I want, I don't even understand myself. I do not understand what I do. You ever felt like that? You said something ugly to her and you said, I don't understand myself. I just resolved yesterday not to do that again. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. There's what we call the residual uh, flesh. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in in my flesh, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. That This I keep on doing. Sounds like a crazy man, doesn't it? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. <laughs> but it is sin living in me that does it. So Paul says, in my inner nature, in my soul, I want to be obedient. But I have something in my extremities, the extremities of my soul. It's kind of like an arm or a leg. And they keep rising up and creating warfare. They keep rebelling against headquarters. In headquarters, I want to do what is right. But I have these rebellious troops out there that aren't cooperating in my, in, within me. So I find this law at work, verse 21. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, there you have it, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. So you can see the frustration there. Now, if you'll back up earlier in chapter 7 of Romans, uh, we'll see the, the big idea here. He says, look at verse 4. My brothers, you also died to the law. He's talking about when a, when a husband dies, the wife is set free from that husband. He's saying, in the same way, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we, now look at this line, this is, this is the key, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He's really not talking about two different type of people, Christians or non-Christians. And chapter 7 in Romans is not about a Christian nor about a non-Christian. It's about a person who is seeking to be sanctified by the old way of the law. What is the old way of the law? Well, you look at the Ten Commandments. You look at commandment number 10, and you say, Today, by George, I'm not going to cut it. You look at the law, you look at yourself, and you put it into practice. It'll be about 10 minutes, and you'll be coveting something. That's what Paul's saying. When I don't want to covet, the more I don't want to covet, I covet. It's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. That's the way of the law. You look at the law, 
And then you look to yourself to put it into practice. And that's exactly what the old Judaistic way of obedience was. Look at the law, build up your moral strength, put it into practice. Now, he talks then in in chapter 7, verse 6, about the new way of the Spirit. There's another way to do this. Praise God. Now, look back in the latter part of Romans 7 where we were. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Here's the answer. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Keep reading. Chapter 8. Remember when Paul wrote this, there were no chapter headings. It was all one big letter. It didn't didn't have titles. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do. You see that? The law was powerless to do it. The law is good. He says, this is not the law's fault that I'm so messed up. The law is good. It's true. It's holy. But it's powerless to change me. It reveals the character of God. The law tells me what I'm supposed to do. It just doesn't give me any power whatsoever. So when the law combines with my flesh, I'm a dead duck. So he's saying, okay, the the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. So the condemnation of the law is gone because of Christ in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now keep reading. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, verse 9, are controlled not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So, friends, you see that we set our mind on the spirit. We don't set our mind on ourselves. We don't set our mind on the law of God. We set our minds on the spirit. We're looking to Him for help. We're casting ourselves on His mercy all the time. That's the secret of the Christian life. We'll see that it's very active. There's a lot of responsibility that falls upon us. But we are living out a life that is empowered by an alien being named God. So just as we have an alien righteousness in our justification, we have an alien power in our sanctification. And it's just as important to know that as the latter as it is the former. There are two secrets in the Christian life. There are two keys to the Christian life, and they're both mysteries. 
The first one is Christ dying on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins and having achieved a righteousness that is yours by faith. That is a mystery. That simply by putting your trust in Christ, all your sins are gone and you get perfect righteousness as your record before God. That's the first mystery. That relieves us of guilt complexes. That relieves us of the fear of death. But there's a second mystery. And this mystery is that we are living out the Christian life by the presence of God Himself living in us, and we are living His life in our life. He is in us, and we are in Him. We are organically connected, like an arm and a leg, like a head and a body, like a husband and a wife, like a vine and its branches. We are organically connected to God in intimate union. That's a mystery. And you can't live the Christian life without it. It's the second mystery now to which Paul has turned. He talked about the first mystery, especially in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, whereby we saw that we're justified, we're acceptable before God because of what God has done in Christ on Calvary's cross. Now we're finding out not only are we acceptable, but we're being transformed by a new way, not the way of the law that the Judaizers were teaching, but the way of the Spirit. That's what this is all about. So we cannot defeat the flesh, B. You do not do what you want, and you will never do what your heart, your converted heart wants until you rest upon the Holy Spirit. You trusted in, if you're a believer today, you trusted in Jesus Christ. You, you finally said, okay, I've tried to earn my way. I give up. I found that it's impossible to earn favor before God. I've heard enough about God's holiness. I've heard enough about my sin. I know I'm helpless. I give up. I surrender. I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. He died for me. You must go through the same exercise with respect to the Spirit. I've tried to live the Christian life. I've tried to obey the Ten Commandments. I've tried to be like Jesus. I finally give up. Holy Spirit, come inside me. Take over. Rule my life. And I want to depend upon you every day, every moment for the living out of this Christian life. So you're completely dependent not only for your justification, you're completely dependent for your sanctification. Now the difference is, in your justification, you contributed nothing to it except the sin that made it necessary. That's what you contributed to your justification. Jesus Christ did it all for you. In sanctification, God is doing it all for you too, but you are working with Him feebly, but really. Not perfectly, but repentantly. You, there's, a, there's a synergism in sanctification that is not there in justification or even in regeneration, the new birth. That was monergistic. This is synergistic, two energies, more, more than one energy. So indeed, it's by the power of God, but He is working not just for you on your behalf. He's working through you so that you're actually changing and cooperating with Him to some degree. That's what sanctification is all about. And you can't do that without the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. Now notice C, verse 18, we've already anticipated this. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Here's what he's saying. If you do what we're talking about in Romans 7 and Galatians chapter 5, you are no longer under this trap that Paul was talking about in Romans 7. You're no longer condemned by the frustration of, the very thing I want to do, I can't do. And the very thing I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. 
No, you're in this mode. Thanks be to God who delivers us from this body of death. You're into thanks be to God mode. Now, does that mean you've perfectly conquered all your demons? No. I, I said earlier, it's a warfare every day. But now you are not depending upon perfection for your satisfaction. You're simply depending upon the Holy Spirit to work in and through you. And you're living a transparent life. And you're seeking all the help that He provides in order to walk with the Spirit. Now let's back up for just a moment on this solution. And let's go back to the very first verses that we looked at in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, So I say, live by the Spirit. Let's just go back there for a moment. We're still under C, the solution. But I want you to back up to verse 16 to see something very important. Here's where I think it's regrettable that the NIV has tried to make the, uh, the original text more understandable to us. I suppose you could say that living by the Spirit would be a little bit more uh, contemporary than what a literal translation would be here. But I much prefer the literal translation. And here's the literal, literal translation. Walk in the Spirit. Walk. Now, it could be by the Spirit or in the Spirit. There's not a preposition in the, in the Greek, so we don't know for sure. But it's a, for those of you who, who know Greek, it's in the dative case. It's just walk in the Spirit or by the Spirit. So the word is walk. This is a very important word. In the Old Testament, you get the word walk 1,500 times. Uh, the old uh, Jewish ethical code is called the halakha from the, the Hebrew word halak, which means to walk. And the, the whole life of the godly man in the Old Testament is a walking. You get walk 95 times in the New Testament. NIV doesn't translate that way so often as you see here. Uh, the, the NIV is trying to get the, the feel of it, which is just, just live, live your life. And that's what a walking is. Now, in the Old Testament, you have, for example, a couple of examples where we're told certain people walked with God. Enoch walked with God. And you know the old Baptist preacher, he, uh, he went to his new church and for the first three Sundays, he taught on baptism for believers by immersion only. First three Sundays. And the deacons went to him after the third Sunday and said, Preacher, now we're all Baptists here. We're, we're glad to hear those good sermons on baptism, but don't you think you ought to preach on something else? He said, well, sure, I'll be glad to preach on anything you like. He said, you pick the text. And the, the deacon said, okay, well, how about Enoch walked with God? pastor said, that's fine. I'll be glad to preach on that. Next Sunday, he gets up and he says, Enoch walked with God. I have three points. First point is, you can't walk very far until you come to a body of water. <laughs> that's not what God had in mind when he talked about Enoch walked with God. But <laughs> we're told that Noah walked with God. And then with Abraham, in chapter 17 of Genesis, we're told that he walked before God. Aren't those beautiful pictures? You have somebody walking along with God, kind of like hand in hand. And then you have somebody, God's the king, and he has his servants walk before him. And they're always under his sight and under his supervision, under his correction, always accountable to him, walking before him in righteousness. Beautiful pictures. But nowhere in the Old Testament do you get what you get in the New Testament when it comes to walking. In the New Testament, you get walking with, walking before, but you get walking in. And the most classic example, if you'll take your Bibles and turn just over a few pages to uh, Colossians 2, look at page 1931. I'm sorry, 1930. In Colossians 2, verse 6, Paul says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, 
continue to, and the NIV says live in Him. It's walk in Him. Here you do have the preposition. Continue to walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Here, what the New Testament is saying is our intimacy with God is so tight that we're actually walking in Him. I mean, you've never walked in another person. You've walked with her. You've walked before Him. You've experienced that. But you've never physically, humanly walked in another person's body. Here, we're told our salvation in Christ, this mystery is we're walking in Him. And you say, well, what does that mean? If you look at Colossians 2, you'll see what it means. It means we're rooted in Christ. That's an agricultural analogy. Our roots go down into His soil, so we're drawing all of our nourishment from Him. Then He says we're, we're built up in Him. That's an architectural analogy. So you have the substructure is in Christ. You have the superstructure is in Christ. And then we're told we're strengthened in the faith as we were taught. So the Holy Spirit actually strengthens us. And then we're told that we overflow with thanksgiving. The, the joy of the Holy Spirit overflows in our lives. You see, we're rooted in Him. We're built up in Him. We're strengthened by Him. And we express ourselves in Him. Everything's in Him. It's completely inclusive of our entire lives. And we are conclusive in His life. It's an amazing thing. This is the mystery of the Christian life. It is to fight the battle. The war is on. Conflict is great. But the solution is that we walk in God and we are therefore led by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit not because the Spirit is out ahead of us like the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. Surely the Holy Spirit led the people through the wilderness. And that's a marvelous thing to be led by the Spirit. That's not the way that we're led. We're led by the Spirit because the Spirit has taken up residence in our hearts and is moving every member of our bodies and is changing our minds and changing our affections and changing our hearts and changing our wills. That's how we're being led by the Spirit. And looking around this room and all these knuckleheads, that's the only way it could possibly work, isn't it? <laughs> who, who here is going to do, do what God wants us to do unless He completely takes over? Let me tell you, this is how bad you are. This is the work that had to be done to make a Christian out of you. <laughs> I mean, we, we, Paul says, forget Judaism. It doesn't work. Just putting the law out there and give you a few rituals and a few habits to go through, it ain't going to work. No, we've got to have a complete takeover of the Christian in order for this to work. That's exactly what's happened. And here's why. Only one reason. He loves you. And he's determined. And His love will recreate universes. His love will go through any, anything to get you. And that's exactly what He's done. He has conquered the forces of evil on the cross and by the presence of His Spirit who still abides in this broken world and in this sinful man. And God has left His clean place and come to an unclean place. He's left His safe place and come to an unsafe place because of one reason. He loves us. And that's how pervasive his love is. There's a war going on and he's winning it. And that's how he's doing it. Now, secondly, if you look at verses 19 through 23, you'll see that the life of the flesh and the spirit produce opposite results. This is very obvious to most people. Some of it's very subtle, not so obvious, but a lot of it's very obvious. 
And the Apostle Paul says, the acts of the sinful nature, the acts of the flesh, or the, uh, literally, the works of the flesh. That would be the best way to translate that. The works of the flesh are obvious. They're obvious. You can see the work of the natural man. It's obvious. Look around the world at the corruption of governments. It's obvious. Look around the world at how people hate each other. It's obvious. Look at how marriages in this country are flying apart. It's obvious. The works of the flesh are obvious. What are these works of the flesh? Well, uh, John Stott in his commentary, and some of you may have read that, I think does a good job of categorizing these works of the flesh in four categories. And just quickly, let's, let's go through them for a moment. The first category he suggests is our sexual behavior. And you get those first three, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. And of course, in the scriptures, old and new, you get emphasis upon sexual life. So much rests on sexual life. Why? Well, obviously sexual temptations are very powerful. I mean, you know that as well as I do. When our thoughts go astray or sometimes our behavior or our words, we see again how powerful sexual temptation is. Obviously, sex is a big deal because sex is part of the foundation of the human family. And successful sexual relationships have a lot to do with the psyche of the next generation. And a lot of us have experienced a lot of pain because of someone else's lack of sexual control, lack of control of their sexual impulses. And a lot of us have experienced a lot of pain because of the lack of control of our own sexual impulses. So we've seen, it's like electricity. It's a very powerful, wonderful thing, but if it gets out of bounds, it can destroy lives. And sex, the sexual life can be very destructive. So you'll find, of course, in the Old Testament, a number of regulations with respect to the sexual life. You find the same in the New Testament. But... The chief concern, the chief concern with the sexual life is theological, believe it or not. I guess you expect a preacher to say that. But in the Old Testament, a community's sexual life reflected their theology. It was true with the Israelites. It was also true with the Canaanites. You remember when Joshua came into Canaan, you had Baal and Ashtaroth and other gods being worshipped. They were basically fertility gods. And when we do our research, we find that the worship in those, in those temples, such as they were, had to do with temple prostitution. And why did they have temple prostitution? Because Baal and Ashtaroth are whimsical, capricious gods. They may be on your side today, but they'll be completely against you tomorrow. You may have rain today, but tomorrow we don't know. He's completely unpredictable. So you're always trying to satisfy him in some way. So you bring offerings to him. And then sacramentally, you have sex with the prostitutes because the gods are fickle. They don't, they're not faithful to one person or one nation. They can be on anybody's side they want to, just like a prostitute. So when Joshua comes into Canaan, God says, clear this place. Destroy the temples of Ashtaroth and Baal because I'm not like that. I'm, I marry one people and I stick with them. And... My, you know, I, I know this is true because I've watched you guys go through wilderness. If anybody had an excuse to dump a nation, it was me. But I stick with the people. I'm a faithful God. And therefore, destroy the temples of Baal and Ashtaroth. That kind of worship is exactly the opposite of who I am. Furthermore, 
I want you to live out not only my nature by being a human being, you're made in my image, but I want your marriage relationships and your families to be in the image of my relationship with you. And I want you to play that out. And here's your script. You be faithful, just like I'm being faithful. You pick a bride, and you be faithful to her, just like I'm faithful to you. I want you to play that out. So your sex life is a reflection of your theological understanding, your theological commitments to a faithful God. It's still true today. It was true with Paul. You find the same phenomenon as he went through Asia and Europe just destroying pagan worship and destroying pagan sexuality. Because pagan sexuality, just look at Romans 1, pagan sexuality is an expression of pagan theology. They had the same fickle gods. They had many of them. And they had temple prostitutes. Paul said the problem with that kind of sex is that it displays a God who doesn't exist. The God who exists is faithful in covenant. Therefore, you be faithful in covenant. That's the reason that one's sex life is so crucial. The work of the flesh is to destroy the work of God and to destroy the image of God upon the face of the earth. The devil's strategy is to destroy you. Why? Because you, above all beings, bear the image of God. And Satan hates anything that bears the image or likeness of God. That's the reason he wants to destroy you. Why does he want to destroy our marriages? Because he wants to destroy anything that reflects the image of God's love for his people. That's what's going on. It's demonic. It's destructive of God's character. And that's what happens when we lose restraint on our sexual impulses. We're cooperating with the demons who are seeking to destroy the image of God and the image of God's love in covenant faithfulness. That's the reason it's first on the list. So sexual immorality is destructive to our worship of God, first of all, and secondly, destructive to relationships. All you have to do, gentlemen, is just look around. It's not loving. And when you have a, a, a sexual relationship with someone outside of the bonds of marriage, don't call it love. You can call it lust, but it is not love. It's the opposite of love. It's indifference at the best, but it's generally a form of selfishness, both for the male and the female for different psychological reasons, but it's intensely selfish. It is not love at all. And marital sexuality is meant to be loving. That is, I cease to demand satisfaction for myself. I'm seeking to bring satisfaction for my spouse. I'm ceasing to worship myself. I'm having sex with my wife in order to honor God. This is a renewal of the marriage covenant, just like God renews His covenant with us in the Lord's Supper. I'm thinking theologically, and I'm thinking in terms of serving my spouse. When I am exercising sexual immorality, I'm only thinking about my selfish lust. It's the opposite of sexual love. That's the reason that extramarital sex is horrible preparation for marital sex because it's the exact opposite. One is loving, intensely loving, and the other is intensely selfish. So it's never a good preparation. The pagans who are saying, uh, I had someone close to me say one time, I'd never marry a man uh, that I didn't live with first to see if we got along physically. Well, you may get along, but it's just, it's just an accident. It has nothing to do with love. Love is not just having natural compatibility. It's serving the other person and building them up. So that's the reason Paul addresses this first. You'll find these strong instructions, especially in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he goes on to speak of impurity and debauchery. All those things are connected. Impurity is basically ritual or physical uncleanness. 
Debauchery is throwing off all restraint, being shameless. The second category Stott mentions in verse 20 is religious behavior. And here we have idolatry and witchcraft. And for the sake of time, we won't go into detail, but basically anytime we divide our loyalties, that's a work of the flesh. Anytime you divide off complete 100% loyalty to the Lord, that's a work of the flesh. And the flesh always creates gods. All you have to do is go to India. 300 million gods. Talk about a work of the flesh. There you have it in graphic living color. And it's deadly. I've watched people walk into those temples and bow down to images of monkeys. And, and you say, this has got to be the most ridiculous, foolish thing I've ever seen in my life. And it is. The fool says in his heart there is no God. It's foolish. And if you've not been brought up in it, you look at it and you say, this is ridiculous. But these people are trapped in it. They've created all kinds of gods to displace the one true and living God to try to provide for themselves out of superstition. And there's witchcraft. And you'll find, of course, in Revelation some pretty severe things about that. But in Exodus, this is what, this is what the magicians were. They, were. they were workers of witchcraft. Uh, then thirdly, Stott mentions relational behavior, and here's the long list. Once again, emphasizing this point, that when you simply leave the leading of your life to your own moral instincts that you were born with or your mama taught you, you are going to live a divisive life. It is not going to be the life that God requires of us in the Scriptures. It's not going to be the life that enjoys the full satisfaction of the presence of God. It's going to be a divisive life. Look at this list, hatred, or the word is hostilities. And Jesus said, love those who are hostile to you. Love your enemies. The flesh doesn't say that. The flesh says, get them back. Discord. And Paul speaks against this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's pleading with the Corinthians, don't divide yourself up into religious parties. We might call them denominations today. He's saying, did... Did Paul die for you? Did Peter die for you? No, Jesus Christ died for you. So live as one body. Jealousy. Uh, you see that here our tendency in the flesh is just when something good happens to somebody else, we're just jealous. That's the instinct that comes to us. That's natural. You're just like everybody else. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to give you love so that you will not be jealous of other people. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition. This is someone who lives like a mercenary. Everything has a dollar mark on it. Everything has what's in it for me on it. Selfish ambition. When you take up the cross, you die to that. Dissensions. Paul speaks of this in Romans 16. Factions, from which uh, we get the word heresies uh, in the original language. or uh, Paul uses it to speak of different sects. So a heresy is something that causes people to divide off into a sect. That's the effect of a heresy. And that's what factions are. And Paul says to avoid those. Envy. Even Socrates said the envious are pained by their friends' successes. I have a friend in his Sunday school class in the church I was pastoring. The Sunday school teacher says, you know, a real friend takes delight when you get your new BMW. And there was a doctor in the back of the room, my friend, who had just bought a new BMW. And he said out loud in class, I don't have any friends like that. <laughs> you know what? You might not either if you don't watch out. I mean, only in Christian community can you really take delight 
in the successes of other people. You know, usually we reserve that affection for our closest of friends or of our own children. Of course, we delight in their successes. And the reason is, in some ways, we feel successful when our children are successful. But what about just someone you know? You get no credit for their success at all. I, I try this one on. How about your competitor? <laughs> try that one off the side. Your competitor, the one who's been eating your lunch for the past five years in your business, and he's very successful. Do you remember Corey Ten Boom? used to get mad at her daddy in Holland because when people would come in to buy clocks, he was a clock maker, and they were looking at a particular type of clock, he would say, now, now sir, you can go down the street, and my friend makes these clocks and sells them at a cheaper price. And Corey would get so mad at her daddy. Now, I don't know how long a business can survive like that. I haven't really worked this out myself, but there's the kind of spirit we're talking about in taking delight in your friend's success. That's the opposite of envy. It's very natural. It's very, very natural for you to envy the success of other people. So relational behavior. And lastly, Stott says these last three include drinking behavior. Isn't it interesting? Don't, I'm sorry to mess with your social life so much today, but that's what Paul is doing. He's saying the work of the flesh is to mishandle alcohol. Not just to be a wine bibber, but someone who just overdoes it who doesn't have constraints, who doesn't realize that being led of the Spirit means that you will not be drunk with wine, which Paul says in Ephesians, leads to debauchery. And this next one, orgies, you always find the word orgies in the few cases it's used in the New Testament. It's always tied to drunkenness. So revelries or orgies, these kinds of things that are completely inappropriate for the believer, always accompanied by misuse of, of alcohol. Just think about it. In your worst moments, wasn't it usually accompanied with drunkenness. And then Paul goes on to say, that's not all, and the like. There are other things as well. So there you have it. Paul says, here's the work of your flesh. If you want to try to take that, those natural instincts, and you want to try to live according to the law of God with those instincts, as John Calvin said, good luck. You're not going to make it. Uh, with, 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 a, with a heart like that and flesh like that, no way. But here's the fruit of the Spirit, B, verses 22 and 23. And notice it's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we could call it the work of the Spirit, I suppose. But don't you love the way the apostle says, let's compare this. Here you have somebody grinding out their life, living in the works of self-righteousness. And look what they produce, all this dissension and discord and inappropriate behavior. Now look what happens when the Holy Spirit takes over and simply bears fruit in your life. And Jesus says, here's the way to think about it. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Now, let, please tell me, how do branches bear fruit? Here's how they do it. No, they just sit there. They abide in the vine. And Jesus said, if you'll abide in me, if you'll remain in me, if you'll stay in me, you will bear fruit. And so there's simply an intimacy, a relational intimacy that is at the heart of your ability to bear fruit. It's just like any, it's, you can use the human analogy. If you hang out with a certain crowd and you really like them and you're drawn to them, guess what you're going to be like? That crowd. And so you better pick a good crowd. If you really admire your daddy, guess who you're going to be like? <laughs> well, hopefully you had a good daddy if you admire him that much. Hopefully you're not overly biased because you're going to be like him. 
you're going to carry his same faults as his same strengths if you really admire him. So the same with the Spirit. If you love him and you adore him and you worship him and you want to be like him and you invite him into your heart, guess who you're going to be like? You'll just simply bear the fruit of the Spirit. And notice here that it's not fruits of the Spirit. It's the works of the flesh that are in disarray, multiple types of evil works. Here you have one fruit, one luscious fruit. It all hangs together. Now, unlike the gifts of the Spirit, which are apportioned differently among believers, the one fruit of the Spirit is given to all believers in toto. So everything here, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of it given to every believer because it's like all of these nine, uh, these nine aspects or, or graces are like looking at different facets of a diamond. It's one diamond, and the whole diamond is given to you. This is the life of the Spirit, and the Spirit is one, and He lives in you, and you're simply bearing Christ-likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is describing here. We'll take each of those and go through them. Now, when we come to verse 23, secondly, Paul says, interestingly, at the end of this, Against such things there is no law. Isn't that interesting? What a way to say it. He's saying, look, let me tell you something. The good thing about the fruit of the Spirit, it's not against the law. (laughs) That's the understatement of the universe. So those of you who are thinking according to law, let me let you in on it. This is not against the law. Against loving somebody, there's no law. Against joy, there's no law. Against peace, there's no law. So he's saying, don't worry about breaking the law. You're definitely keeping the law. What he's saying really in an ironic way is this. This takes you way beyond the law. Now, what's really interesting is if you go back in the classical world, you'll find that Aristotle writes an entire volume on the man who lives beyond the law. And Aristotle doesn't mean that he's lawless. What he means is that he's such an upright citizen that he doesn't need the law book, that he actually kind of writes the law himself because he's a man of such noble character. Now, Paul may be aware of that, he may not, but it's the same idea, that you're in such love with Jesus Christ that you don't have to do like Romans 7 says and go, I will not covet, therefore I'm going to be strong and not covet. No, you love the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't covet. The Holy Spirit serves. Jesus Christ serves. And you have an entire mentality. It's kind of like we say in business. You can go one of two two ways in your business if you're trying to regulate it. You can have a really thick rule book and get everybody to read your policies and procedures and be able to quote them by memory, or you can create what they call ethos, where you have high buy-in, everybody loves the organization they're in, they love the people they're with, They believe the mission you're trying to accomplish and they develop an intuition. And by intuition, they would never violate your core values. And they almost become a walking rule book. They wouldn't use the same words, but they'll give you the same concept because they personalized it into their own words, but they have the same concept as the person they're working with because they've got ethos. That's what Paul is saying. Against such, there is no law, but it's way beyond the law. 
you have actually now taken in the living God into your heart. And you have a heart that thinks thoughts after Christ. Now, does that mean you don't care about the law? No, it means you love the law even more. Does it mean you don't read the law? No, it means you read the law, but you enjoy it now. And you're saying, yeah, there's my legacy. There's my heritage. There's my heart. That's what I want. And the Bible then inspires you to be whom the Holy Spirit is making you to be. It becomes intuitive. That's the work of the Spirit. It's from the inside out rather than from the outside in. This is the second big mystery of the Christian faith. Now, lastly, verses 24 through 26, we must take decisive action. Gentlemen, it would be a big mistake for any of us to think, well, I'm just going to sit here. Holy Spirit, just take over. No, he says walk in the Spirit. He doesn't say lie in the Spirit. That's the reason I, I don't even like the NIV word live by the Spirit because live could be taken as passive. Walk. Go somewhere. Get it moving. You think the Holy Spirit just lies around? You think the Holy Spirit's not interested in working to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? That's His whole purpose is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. How hard do you think the Holy Spirit is at work today in the world to lead nation after nation to faith in Jesus Christ? He's powerfully at work and He's saying, Come on, rise up and walk with me. Walk in me and I'll walk in you. If you're in the Holy Spirit, folks, you're going somewhere. So there's got to be a decisive action. Remember, it's synergistic. We were depend upon His work, but His work is to enable us to do our work as Christian people. First thing is crucify the flesh. The death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit, says John Calvin. That is, you must crucify your own sinful passions and lusts. It's a daily work. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to deny yourself and your fleshly passions and carnal lusts. It's warfare. You go against it every day. This is essential because he's saying those who belong to Christ. It's for everybody who's in Christ. We must do this. Secondly, notice it's painful. I don't know last time you've looked at the seven last words, but our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, he was in great pain. I thirst. And then he cried out at the last and gave up his spirit. He was in agony, and so will you be in agony. This is a decisive action. You're putting something to death that's in the real you, in your flesh, that you're trying to control. Paul says, I beat my body to get it, whip it into shape so that after having preached to many, I don't, I'm not lost myself at the last day. He's in discipline. You discipline yourself. It's painful. This is what we call mortification, which is putting something to death. And the way Jesus put it in Mark chapter 8, 34 is, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So we take up an instrument of death to those things that are waging war against the Lord's kingdom. And we kill it. And in fact, in Luke, Jesus said, take up your cross daily. It's a daily death. So if you find yourself in pain every once in a while, well, welcome to the kingdom of God. Now, lastly, you'll notice that he says not only to mortify, but do what we call vivifying, bringing to life. Keep in step with the Spirit. He says, uh, since we live by the Spirit, that is, since we derive our life by the Spirit, since our roots are put into the soil of the Spirit, we're getting our nutrients from the Spirit, since we have life by the Spirit, let us then 
keep in step with the Spirit. Now, this word keep in step is one word in the Greek, and it just means to walk in line or to walk in rows. It's a military word. Line up. Walk in line. Stay in line. And that's what the apostle is saying. If you get your life from the Spirit, now come on, let's live a life like the Spirit lives. A life of honoring God. A life of serving other people. A life of spiritual power. Come on, let's live in line with Him. And He's the one who has inspired the entire Bible. You want to know what the Spirit thinks? Read the Bible. That's what the Spirit thinks. That's what He's after. Those are His ambitions. So we live and we walk in line with the Spirit. That's vivification. And then notice, secondly, so that we avoid division in the church. This is the way you do it. The exact opposite of the divisions that are caused by the work of the flesh is unity. And that's the work of the Spirit. That's the reason that Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, when he's emphasizing what's really important in the church, he says, let us keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. The first ethical commandment he gives in Ephesians to those Ephesian Christians. Keep the unity of the Spirit, bond of peace. So the work of the Spirit draws men together, gives them a single mind with many different opinions about things, many different political viewpoints, many different nationalities, many different racial backgrounds, many different socioeconomic backgrounds, but gives them one mind. It's the mind of the Spirit because the same Spirit lives in you, lives in me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the, the gift of your Spirit living in us, changing us increasingly to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you'll help us to keep in line with your Spirit. Help us to know the power, the enormous power, the cosmic power that lives in every believer's heart today. And as we wrestle with the warfare about us, give us the confidence that you will finish up this war. You will complete it. You have already won it. And you will one day declare it fully. And we shall see it with our own eyes and be transformed even physically before your face. We ask that you would help us to trust you, not only for our justification, but for our sanctification today with all the temptations facing us. We commit ourselves to you with thanksgiving for your great gift to us. In Jesus' name, amen.